Welcome to Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown, the founder and CEO of Enter the Arena. I'm a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and business growth. Our mission at Enter the Arena is to empower female founders to fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business with investment expertise and business coaching. Here we share the stories of inspirational female founders who've raised investment to inspire you to do the same. You'll hear their honest accounts of what it was really like to secure funding, the highs, the lows and the challenges they experienced on the journey. And along the way, we'll discuss top tips for how you can be successful too. Today I'm speaking with Joyce and Raisa de Haas, the co-founders of the premium tonic and mixers brand Double Dutch. Double Dutch mixers are low calorie and 100% natural with fabulous flavours like pomegranate and basil and cucumber and watermelon. Only six years into their business journey, Double Dutch now sells over a million bottles each month to 26 countries across the world. And as well as being sold in bars and restaurants, they're also stocked in Waitrose, Amazon and Ocado. They already have 8% share in the market in the UK. Now, Joyce and Raisa, who are not only sisters, but also twins, have won numerous accolades along the way, including being featured in the Telegraph's top 50 most ambitious business leaders in 2019 and being listed in Forbes 30 under 30 Europe list. They also run a scholarship and mentoring program to help other women progress in the drinks industry. Now, in the last five years, Joyce and Raisa have raised around 4.5 million of equity investment through private investors, including their latest three million pound round, where the infamous drinks brand Heineken took a 10% stake. So let's find out more about their fundraising journey, the challenges they faced and what they've learned along the way. So welcome, Joyce and Raisa. Thank you for having us. <laughs> right. So let's go back to the beginning, because you guys came up with the idea for Double Dutch whilst you were studying for your master's at UCL in London, didn't you? So tell us more about that. I've never heard of anyone starting a business whilst they were, whilst they were studying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just love to drink as every other student. <laughs> and okay. then we thought, oh, we need to make our business for a hobby. Uh, we used to always, our parents, they had like... Um, as a hobby as well, a wine and spirits shop in our, basically in our back garden. And they, I mean, they didn't commercially had it, they had it more as friends, but they used that license to make their, distill their own spirits and import like wines and champagnes. And then they organized all these tastings for their friends. So we kind of grew up knowing a lot about spirits and just really, um, yeah, build up like a really big passion for it. And then we went to university in Belgium in Antwerp and there we started throwing like twice a week parties at our place. Um, but our friends would bring the gin and the vodka and then Raisa and I would experiment with different types of sodas in our kitchen. And we would, I don't know, heat up like fruit and add some herbs and then add some sugar, put it in big jars. And that was what like we did. And our friends started calling us tonic twins. And it was just like a super fun thing to do. Um, and then we graduated, we started working in finance hated that so then thought what are we going to do we're 21 uh so we moved to london to do a second master in tech entrepreneurship at ucl and because the master was in tech entrepreneurship the whole point was to devote your year about um writing down a new business id more in the fintech space um but then we came here saw 
choice of spirits is much more experimental than back home. There's the whole gin hype just really started, but choice of mixes is basically as limited and there's not really anything exciting on the market. So we asked UCL whether we could write a dissertation about the whole beverage industry and the fact that that whole evolution and premiumization in spirits isn't really accompanied by soft drinks, which is such a complementary product. So then uh, we did that, did a whole year of market research, um, which was a lot of fun, <laughs> lots of testing. And then we graduated uh, and we got like an award for best dissertation of the year. And then with that, UCL gave us money to execute our business plan, basically. So we used that money to produce our first batch, which was in back, uh, back in 2015 and launched with our cucumber watermelon and pomegranate and basil. Yeah, wow, amazing. And how, how fantastic that UCL gave you so much support in that way. Particularly yeah. as it was a as a, a tech entrepreneurship exactly. uh, course, which you ended up not really doing tech entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, so, and so they gave you some funding as well, did they, as part of that? Yeah, which was basically like a grant. Prize to, money. Yeah, a prize money to, to, it basically covered our first production. Uh, and then they gave us a year of free office space in London and uh, like free lawyers advice. Yeah, that's incredible. So would you um, recommend that as, a, a, as, a, as something that an aspiring entrepreneur should look at, is look at doing some kind of um, degree or a master's in entrepreneurship? Is that something you'd recommend? Yeah, I think it really helped us a lot. I did a, a bachelor and master in finance uh, before, and I think I've learned so much more in one year uh, entrepreneurship than I learned in five years. I think the good thing about the entrepreneurship courses is that it doesn't necessarily learn you, learns you how to be an entrepreneur, but more kind of how to think about all the different aspects of what's going to be involved, like the fundraising, but also kind of the silly things like just setting it up, the insurance part, the kind valuations. of valuations, how to set up um, your equity piece if you have a co-founder, uh, like basics like uh, shareholders as um, a cap table or articles of association kind of like the basics and then also kind of the basics of the first hirings and kind of the marketing piece and finance piece and I think the good thing about that is that it gives you kind of a crash course of one month talking about the financial part and then one month about the, the marketing and the pricing and I don't know I thought it was really helpful yeah. but I think probably for lots of people who don't want to do a whole year I think incubator programs yeah. and stuff um, or just listening to kind of workshops and podcasts and I th just think any day it doesn't need to be a whole year definitely yeah. not yeah exactly but the, di the discipline that you must have had coming out of that is um, obviously shows in terms of the growth that you've achieved um, and I love the fact that you spent so much time doing that kind of research and really thinking it through before you launched which must have been really helpful um, so okay so you had a little bit of money to start it uh, how far did that get you then that first bit of grant funding that came from the university not so far <laughs> <laughs> not far at all <laughs> um, I, mean, I think it um we basically produced our first batch but then um that was it so we didn't really have um uh we still needed to like labels and uh, design and branding and everything. Uh, so then we uh, we used a little bit of our own money that we saved during university from like student jobs, and then basically decided really early on that we needed to raise our first investment round, which was practically um, uh, pre-revenue. Yeah. Okay. And that was back in two thousand and fifteen, right? 
Yeah. So two. So if I'm right in thinking, it was two hundred sixty thousand that you raised yeah. at that point from private investors. So how did you go about doing that? Kind of two, you know, young women who come over from um, the Netherlands. I don't imagine you knew lots of people here. How did you, how did you do it? I mean, was it? I mean, you liked to party. Was it that you were networking as you were out there drinking, or how did you? <laughs> How did you build your network? <laughs> um, well, so we indeed, we came here, we graduated. We were so focused on getting our production right and getting the new flavors that we didn't really, we didn't know anybody in the industry. We didn't really have any family context. Like it, it was so different. We were just like students that graduated, didn't really, never worked in this industry before. So we thought, oh, we're just gonna go on LinkedIn and we're gonna ask people that look on LinkedIn pretty well and like have a relevance. Uh, experience or I don't know hotel owners and whatever we're gonna ask them if they are um, happy to have a coffee with us and initially we just stalked and like emailed like 500 people on LinkedIn like living here in the UK but also living outside of Europe and just everybody who we thought could be useful asking, asking them whether they want to be an advisor in our advisory board or whether they are uh, interested if we could pick their brain and surprisingly enough quite a lot of people said like yeah i have time um i have 30 minutes tell me talk me through your business plan and then that's how we find uh, our first stage of investors that's really great uh, that's fantastic and i think linkedin is such a great tool um for building out your network yeah. what did you find um was the best approach in terms of getting people to respond to you on LinkedIn? I think uh, asking for, not directly for investment, but kind of for help or um, asking for whether they want to consider giving their advice or if we can pick their brain on their experience. I think going in with a slightly softer. Mm -hmm. um, and I think awesome. everybody loves if somebody gives them a bit of a thing about their ego. So yeah. if you tell like, People love hearing like, oh, you've done so well and I'm looking up to you. Would I be able to pick five minutes of your brain? Mm -hmm. I think that's like a better approach probably yeah. than asking them, hey, do you have 250,000 to spend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Flattery will get you a very long way. <laughs> but it's a good point you make about how um, you just ask them if they have five minutes for you. Yeah. Um, you're not asking um, to spend an hour with you or something exactly. like that. Five minutes is not yeah. too much for somebody yeah. to give, and it's the start of how you can build a yeah, relationship. Yeah. And it's never five minutes. It's always going to be 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But I'm sure when they get on the phone with you or they meet you, they want to spend more time with you because you, you know, you've got that kind of energy about you that is very appealing. So um, that's great. So you, so you, Okay, so you're going out to raise all this money. You're building out your network on, on LinkedIn. So at what point did you actually start saying to people, so would you like to invest? <laughs> um, I think for us, definitely the second way around for investment round was much easier because we, so we raised a second investment round in 2017. I think when on LinkedIn the first time yeah. around, just first investment, mm -hmm. uh, first call, right? When would oh. you ask about the investment? First call. Okay. But we would more say we are raising investment. How would you suggest uh, going about this because it's the first time and then some of them said oh, I'd be interested to do X amount and then I think out of that also three people from LinkedIn directly and then two others uh, two other via, investors yeah. came via those initial three yeah. so that they said oh, I have a friend who I always invest with maybe you can speak with him yeah okay and, these, and so these were people who were kind of from the industry that you managed to connect yeah. with yeah 
Okay. And how roughly how many investors did you end up with on that first round? Five. Five. Can you take yourself back to 2015? Do you remember the pain of trying to (laughs) get that round closed or was it not painful? No, I think it was really painful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the uh, difficulty also with um, raising investment pre-revenue is that you don't really have any kind of tangibles on, for example, valuations, or it's more about team and ID and concept. Uh, So I think that was quite difficult. Uh, But also we were really, we didn't really know like how, what kind of investors were we looking for? Was it just CV or is it also personality? And how close are you going to be with your investors? Does it mind if you're not really uh, getting along on a personal level and you're gonna go to a pub together? I mean, we didn't really know, and I think in it definitely does matter. Um, having done a lot of uh, or a lot more investments in mm-hmm. um, I think we always now look at it from a point of view as would we go to a restaurant and have kind of voluntarily have a drink with this person and do we get along on a personal level because I do think you get into some kind of marriage and think it's so important that you get along and I think there was also probably some naivety I think now obviously investors do due diligence to us but at the same time we would also now do due diligence to the investors and we would decline in the same position as we are being declined by investors we would also decline uh, potential investors just because I think what Raisa says, especially at a later stage, you, it's just really important that you have the same vision and you're on the same long-term vision as well, mm. which we didn't really think about. Yeah, very, very, very good point. So good advice for people raising investment for the first time, even yeah. though it's your first time, you should yeah. still be doing due diligence on, yeah. on those investors <laughs> and making sure you can go for a drink with them. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. But congratulations. And again, what, you know, it shows your hustle factor that you you contacted maybe 500 people and got five investors and that's the kind of that's the kind of energy and effort you you have to be putting in i mean hopefully not everybody has to contact 500 people but it's it's work it's work yeah, isn't it's it? a long process definitely yeah. but i think the world is like so has gone so small like now is the time where it should be relatively easier to get in touch with people that would normally you'd never be able to contact so Mm. I think it makes sense to take the most of it. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. Brilliant. So first round 260K you did in 2015 and then you went on to raise a further private investment round yeah. in 2017 for 1. Yeah. 1.2 million. So at that, I mean, at that point, did you think to yourself, Oh, maybe we should go and get some VC funding. Now it's a bigger raise. Um, not yet at that point. Um, I think for us, we always wanted we were kind of thinking about, should we do a part in crowdfunding? I think we didn't want to go to the VC route yet because I think getting a VC on board is culturally really different. And I think we were way too young for that um, because we were only two years old. And I think then it becomes a completely different structure and completely different culture and very, I don't know, much more... Um, working towards our net exit as well, which we didn't really want to. So we were looking between crowdfunding and angel investors and we decided to go again with new angel investors because I think crowdfunding is great and you do get lots of PR and brand ambassadors from it. But then after that, um, 
we were still quite young. We did, we had a super small team and I think we just wanted to get investors that had a network behind them that could help us with distribution and sales, but also could help with strategy and our long-term kind of vision and execution and kind of share their experience. So then we found another 10, um, business angels, uh, also from the industry. Um, which have been really helpful. That's fantastic. So did you have then, you had sort of 15 people backing you? By that? Yeah, something like that. How did you find, um, how did you find it kind of managing all those 15 and did they all have um, a board seat or did some of them have board seats? How did you structure it? Uh, no, we were really, for a really long time in our board, just with three people, us and our chairman. Uh, and then recently, uh, currently are, we are with six people in our board, so it's still relatively small. I think, uh, for smaller companies, I don't see any reason why you should have more than probably six people in the board. But um, I think managing it, if you get along, it's all very easy. Um, and I think some people are more pass passive and some people are more active and some people want to be involved um, more actively. Um, I think I think the second, the second investment right was also much easier or better because most of the investors we all we all knew already so lots of them were customers of ours that always said they either owned pubs or hotels or were like ceos of bigger um retail companies and they we already knew that for like maybe 18 months or two years and they said like oh if you're ever raising money i'd be interested to invest so we kind of knew them more from a business aspect we knew them from a personal level um and that massively helped it, yeah, I don't know. We just knew them better. It was easy, and until the day, until today, those are like the best investors. Um, or I think great, especially like one of our mentors, who is the CEO of Portman Mason, New Inventors. He also helped us a lot. He, um, I think, like yeah, it's, there's some people that have been like crucial for the business, and for example, Ewan has been like one of those people that also then uh, introduces to friends of his that then invested and i think that's really the ideal way of building up a shareholders just yeah yeah so strategic investors has clearly paid off for you guys yeah i mean what do you think it was that really attracted them to invest at those uh, at that early stage what what was it that was that really nailed it do you think um i think in the second round when you're kind of two three years old i think the most important thing is showing growth um, and I, I think that's definitely the most important. And then I think team, um, is important and, um, credibility in the market. Yeah. I think it was important for us to have like the right accounts being in like all the premium hotels and all the, uh, premium retailers, like being in accounts that gave us credibility rather than only being in pub next doors. Yeah. Yeah. But I think ideally in the first kind of two, three years, you want to sit at like high double digit, triple digit quotes. Yeah. Uh, and then it's quite, then there's enough potential to kind of see it in the long run. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, um, so that must have taken you a lot further along the road then that 1.2 million. Um, and then so I was gonna ask you a question actually about the valuation. I know you mentioned that for the first round that was quite difficult for you to know how to set your valuation. Did you, how did you figure out what your valuation should be on those rounds? I think first time 
the pre-revenue, everyone kind of sets it in a, I mean, most, we just looked at what other companies in our industry set it at, at pre-revenue. Um, we started speaking with people uh, and then it's just, I think about getting one person on board at that valuation that you've set. Yeah. And then you just need to stick to it. If other people say like, oh, it's too expensive or I want a discount, then you just need to stick with it. And that's going to be your valuation. I think um, even if it's, even if you're raising 200,000 pounds and only one person, you have one person confirmed at 5,000 pounds, just stick to the valuation. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise it just becomes a mess and everyone has different valuations. And then it's just a mess for the future. And I think once you have revenues, it's just looking at kind of a benchmark of how other uh, younger companies in your industry are being valued, which is usually kind of five to seven times revenue-ish, um, which was kind of in our industry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it can be quite tough at the start, isn't it, really? I mean, some people do advanced subscription deals when they don't, at the beginning, so they don't have to set the valuation, which is one route to go. But um, yeah, but actually at the, end of the, at the end of the day, the valuation you set at the beginning is kind of neither here nor there. And if people yeah. are... Yeah. negotiating over it to the nth degree it's probably they're probably not the right people yeah true yeah so let's talk about your more recent round which is really interesting so you do, you've done a round for three million which heineken came into yeah. Yeah. So how did that how did that all come about um we had a mutual like more network we had a mutual um acquaintances and he his dad, uh, also investor, and he introduced us to um, the family Heineken. And we flew to Amsterdam, met Michel de Canalro, um, got, along. got really, like on a personal level, got really well along. Obviously, I think for, from our perspective and point of view, if we ever said like, oh, if there's one family in the world that we could choose that would be an investor or a shareholder in Double Dutch, it would always have been Heineken. I think on like a cultural level on um, like Dutch heritage, their family business, like everything female. is, fe they're yeah. super female led in their boards. I think that whole perspective is so amazingly relevant for Double Dutch. Um, and then we met them and we got along really well as well. Um, so yeah, I think we were super, super, super lucky. And like, I think it's amazing to have them on board. Uh, Mr. De Cavallo is also joining our boards uh, as a director. So I think, yeah, I think it's great for Double Dutch to like further expansion and that there's probably not really any better shareholder. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that there's so much more that they can do for you beyond just the money. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when you take a strategic investor on board like that, um, is that, do you see that as a, as a start towards a potential acquisition by them down the, down the line? Is that what you imagine may happen? Uh, not necessarily. I think for us, it's more for increasing our distribution and increasing sales. And um, we are not necessarily looking at an exit, um, but you never know what happens. But uh, we're definitely not working actively towards an exit. So we'll see. Yeah, amazing. But already in 26 countries, so you're doing pretty well. Um, can you tell me, like, as how have you found it kind of being co-founders in all of this? Has that been helpful for you, do you think, in the fundraising process to, to be two of you? Yeah, yes. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Super. Um, uh, I think 
like the key thing with co-founder uh, with having someone and uh, as a co-founder, I think the lows are a little bit less low and the highs are double as high. And I think you can pick each other up and I think celebrating together is much more fun, but also if there's like a hard times, you can at least kind of uh, complain and just, I don't know, just, um, just kind of complain and <laughs> uh, <laughs> contemplate. Like, yeah. If you have like some doubts, it's so much easier if you're like, almost i don't know you're 95 percent sure but there's like five percent doubts and then we speak with each other and then you'll be convinced like so much easier i don't know i think it's so important with like super important decisions that you have somebody that you can be 100 percent one honest with doesn't and necessarily need to be a co-founder maybe it's also yeah. like a mentor or um a parent or um i don't know doesn't need to be a co-founder but i do think that it is easier setting up a company when you are with two or three yeah. people and have someone else as well. Yeah, but often the key is having just somebody who can be there yeah. to support you through it. I'm, I love to know kind of as twins, like when you're pitching, do you, because people always like, when I'm pitching with my co-founder, you know, like she does this bit and I do this bit, you know, how do you guys do it? Do you just know, do you, do you just kind of like finish each other's sentences and things like that? <laughs> <laughs> kind of grew towards, I do kind of my bits and Justice her bits, but I think we are naturally quite, um, I think if somebody stops talking, then it's obvious like, oh my God, she doesn't, it, I need to pick up. <laughs> uh, so I think it's also natural that we'll just kind of finish each other when the other one is in trouble. <laughs> yeah, you've had a lifetime of practicing doing that. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, my last business was with my, was with my sister and we didn't pitch together very often, um, but it, because we know each other so well, it was just really easy to know yeah. who was step in when. So it was really, I loved that. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> and I mean, I know you, you're both like big supporters of, of women in your industry and, and, and doing lots to try and get more women to rise up and become, you know, and be successful at running drinks businesses. Have you, when you've been out there fundraising, have you, have you experienced it as being um, two young women? Have you come across any challenges around that? Any kind of bias or have you, have you not experienced that at all? Um, I definitely think that there is uh, gender bias and I think um, if, uh, women do get less funding uh, and obviously all statistics say so, but I also do think that it is becoming better and there are becoming also lots of opportunities for female founders. And I think there are lots of, for example, now VC funds only focusing and investing in female founded uh, companies. I think there's lots of competitions and awards programs focusing on female entrepreneurship. And I think lots of people are trying to um, lead kind of the pot to... You're gonna have to answer that question again. <laughs> So did you, did you find you experienced any um, gender bias at all when you were out there fundraising? I think it's definitely there. And uh, obviously female founders do get less investment and all the statistics say so as well. But I really do think that there is definitely a positivity and there is growth. And I think there are lots of award programs and mentorship programs just focused on female founders and female entrepreneurs. There are lots of VC funds coming up as well here in the UK and in the US, especially um, focusing on only investing in female founded businesses, which I think is super positive. And I do think that 
you can stand out more as female founders. So I think if you can just use it to your advantage and um, make it part of the story and of kind of what you stand for. And I think, but also yeah. use, I think the support, I think that's, it's, out, there. that's yeah. out there. I think it's great that there's all those incentives, but we all need to go to those female networking events. We all need to go and pitch for those VCs that are focused on female. Is that because otherwise it's all been for nothing? And I think it's great that there's in some way, maybe a little bit more opportunities now for females so that we can close the gap quicker. Uh, but yeah, I think it's important that it's also being used and that more people offer it as well. Even like we are a super small business, but we are trying to offer something for female bartenders in our industry. And I think if we're all doing something, then hopefully uh, we don't need to talk about this in 10 years time anymore. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? That's brilliant. <laughs> so owning it, but also I love this point you've made about kind of stand, actually put yourself out there and, and use these resources. And it's something I hear a lot from the industry. People say, well, you know, we want to speak to female founders, but they're not coming forward. Yeah. So there's definitely something in that too, that we have to kind of step up and really kind of go for it. Yeah. We clearly have done. All right. So I've got a couple more questions to ask you. So looking back on those three fundraising rounds and how you've done the whole thing, is there anything that you would do differently if you could go back again? Um... I think uh, <laughs> I think it's uh, there's always probably more time in between uh, starting your fundraise and actually getting money on the bank account. I think even if you very quickly in a few in two months' times already have confirmed all investors and they've signed their paperwork, then to actually get the money on the bank account always just takes a, quite a long time. So I think you need to plan for that and. Um, it's you definitely need to plan at least six months in between uh, getting an investment on board and then actually getting the money. So I think um, that took quite longer than we expected the first time around. Um, and I think maybe in our first round that we had one lead investor um, and then so one lead investor for smaller investors. I think if I would have done it again, yeah. I would have for similar kind of a mind raised, especially in that first, in that first I think second, third round, it all doesn't matter. And it's probably sometimes better to have one or two main investors. But I think that first round, uh, having a really big minority shareholder compared to the other minority shareholders, it can sometimes be challenging. And I think I, would, uh, I wouldn't do that again. Yeah. Mm. So getting a bit more balance in the, in the shareholding. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I hear you. Any kind of um, top tips? Top, a top tip that you would say to female founders that they're thinking about their fundraising. We obviously talked about timescales and a bit of due diligence. Anything else that you would say, if you're going to do one thing, like do this. Um, I think use the, your whole network. It doesn't matter. Like, I think you need to speak to, yeah. speak to your lawyers, your solicitors, to your neighbors, to your local pub, like anybody who knows anybody. I think we met the most amazing mentors and investors in our business. Super random to the most random introductions ever. And I think you never know, also use like every network event. I think it's super time consuming, but you go to 20 network events that are probably useless, but you go and at 21st one, you're gonna meet the game changing guy that either is or girl that's your new massive employee, your mentor or shareholder. Yeah. I think, it's really all about uh, giving business to people. It's not giving business to products. And I think really that's all about. So 
expand your network as much as possible even if it's super time consuming i think lots of people having a business is just takes so much time so you're tired and you want to go to bed in the evening i, think, <laughs> I get that yeah, i get that but you need to go and have that gin tonics in the evening <laughs> go for dinners go for network events have drinks yeah. uh yeah i think it's super i really really believe in network i think yeah. that's the key to, to and i think also i get to lure people in with you know your tonic water you know, <laughs> with me. Exactly. make sure that while you network you have a double dutch yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, it's a really good point. Yeah, because if you're the kind of entrepreneur that doesn't want to talk to people about your idea, I mean, some people don't want to talk about their yeah. business or their idea because they think someone's going to steal it, or whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. You've got to yeah. talk to everybody because no one's exactly. going to really yeah. steal your idea. Not really. Yeah, yeah. too. And I think also so many people that also I get like also like, oh, can you help me with uh, uh, finding people, investors that maybe I'll send you my uh, business plan. But then I, they get, so most, most people that are raising investment have a short deck and then a long deck, which makes total sense. I get sent short decks super, super often, but there are no financials in those short desks, uh, decks. And I think it's so important to have financials also in the short decks. And almost everyone always tells me like, oh no, I don't want to send my financials to anyone and everyone because everyone will see it. Also people that are not going to invest, but nobody's going to even get a sparkle of interest if you're just putting everything on your deck that's on your website you need to include uh, financials in your short decks and if you're asking people to help you with introductions you just need to be able to share details yeah. and nobody's really gonna steal your ids or talk about your financials to anyone else um <laughs> i think it's all fine or let them sign an nda yeah yeah or well, there's ways you can send things out and protect them I mean, you know there's stuff you can do but yeah good yeah. advice <laughs> so what so what's next for you girls then i mean you you've got this great deal with heineken do you think do you think you'll have to raise investment again in the near future or will that fill you with absolute dread <laughs> you can now focus on growing growing yeah. not raising money every second of the <laughs> yeah that's good and um, we i mean just before we started this interview we were chatting we, we, we're recording this as lockdown is starting to open up this weekend it's going to be the first weekend where people can go to the pub. Oh yeah. my God. Um, so I imagine that, you know, things are going to really skyrocket for you. Yeah. Do you, do you what do you see as, as, you know, how have you seen the whole kind of pandemic and what's coming next? What's been going on? Uh, I think we used, we used to be super, super focused on the trades with like Western Bars Hotels. And I think the whole lockdown has learned us that online and retail is really important as well. Uh, so I think for us, we're putting a lot more efforts in our online retail and digital. Um, but obviously, pubs and restaurants are still going to be important. So, um, yeah, but just not only retail, uh, not just only bars and restaurants. Mm. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on all your success so far. I feel like I need a gin and tonic. <laughs> Is it too early? Is it too early? No, yeah, never. <laughs> Everything on the time. I mean, who cares? Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to seeing where Double Dutch goes next. Thanks, girls. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Thanks for following Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. This content is all provided to you for free. So if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe so you never miss another one. Enter the Arena has helped hundreds of female founders fly through pre-raise and investment and onto the exponential growth of their business. Our first-hand experience, expert guidance and proven programs help female founders unleash the Wonder Woman inside. 
to see if we can help you do the same, head over to www.entertheArena.co.uk. I'm Julia Elliott-Brown and I look forward to talking with you soon.